Welcome back, everyone, to this week's OIS podcast. Today, our host, Dr. Rob Rothman, chats with industry leader Jeanette Banks about her path to ophthalmology and what's on the horizon for Alcon. Let's listen in. Hey, good afternoon, OIS podcast audience. Nice to be speaking with you again. Let me now take the time to introduce uh, somebody who I'm very excited to speak with, Jeanette Bankus, who is the president and general manager of the global surgical franchise at Alcon. And Jeanette, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the global surgical franchise is the biggest part of Alcon, somewhere around $5 billion or so of revenue per year. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Thank you for taking the time to speak Hello, with us Rob. today. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure, Rob. Um, number one, uh, you have a similar personality to me, very driven, very passionate about the space. You are correct. We're close to $5 billion and growing, um, both domestically and internationally. So very large business, uh, leader in a lot of uh, the spaces that we compete in. Um, and I'm a proud resident of Dallas, Texas, about two years ago. I joined Alcon two years ago. I think that there are a lot of people going to want to hear how you got to where to where you are. I'm born and raised in the Philadelphia area. I was always a math and science buff. I first thought I was going to declare pharmacy. If you ask me why pharmacy, that was a cool degree to have. I thought, okay, I can do a lot with that. I got into undergraduate, loved. I know you guys are going to shriek at this, but I loved organic <laughs> chemistry, yeah. biochemistry, yeah. P-chem. So all, for all the medical folks that might be listening to us, I tended to like the abstract things, the complex things that you had to solve for. It wasn't memorization of biology. Well, I did a lot of biology. It was a lot of memorization versus actual analytics. So my undergraduate degree, I'm a scientist in the brain, but a marketing and salesperson by heart. You'll get to feel that as you interview me, my personality and, and uh, my spitfire um, ways about me. Um, so undergraduate in, in STEM, um, I aspired to work for a large company coming out of my undergraduate degree. I had the pleasure of starting with Merck, Fortune 500 for all those organic classes where we were using the Merck manual for boiling points, et cetera. I knew Merck to be a household name, a Fortune 500 company. I happened to be growing up in the Philadelphia area, so Lansdale, Pennsylvania was home to me, or at least close to home. And so I started my career in vaccine production Bring it full circle, COVID, you know how many family members and colleagues call me. I did several years in vaccine development, production, et cetera. So you could always go there with me as well. Um, it'll be a personal view and a scientific one as well. Um, but spent several years at Merck, um, diverse career portfolio in both vaccines. And then ultimately realized the bigger part of Merck was in pharmaceutics. And so as I progressed, I was on a PhD track at first. Um, I was doing clinical research for the company. And what I realized was I was that combination that loved the business, but loved the science behind the business. And so I moved and I, I literally said, okay, I'm not going to finish my PhD. I'm going to join the business side of the house. And so I moved into a global role, uh, creating what's now over a billion dollar enterprise for Merck, which is a private sector vaccine in Asia Pacific. That was one of my first business roles. And so jumped right into the fire with my scientific background and went over during uh, this will date us. Uh, China went to a one child role and, you know, antigens and safety of antigens for MMR, varicella, et cetera, were never more important to have a safe product. And so we stood up a private sector market in Asia Pacific. And that was my first foray into business. And I realized I could combine the passion of science with the passion of business that I, that I was attracted to. And so I, I had a, a 12 to 13 year career with Merck, 
but I was missing something. And while I love the pharmaceutical industry, the piece of my job that I love most is a collaborative partnership with physicians. And I realized that I loved creating science, developing science, and ultimately commercializing things that they needed. And so while I love molecules and understand it by availability, when you get into a medical device company, I call it an artistic science because while our engineers and our scientists can develop the best piece of equipment, what's the one variable put on my analytical hat? It's the surgical capabilities around the world. And so we have to navigate for those ver- that variability. And so in medical devices, what attracted me to Boston Scientific, 2004, drug-eluting stents, they were looking for pharma backgrounds. This was now a biological mechanical device where you had to know know pharma and devices at the same time. I was recruited to come into med devices and I never looked back. And the reason that I was attracted to the market was that partnership at every part of the journey from ideation, and we'll talk about that for the folks that are financial, you know, private equity, what is it that a big company is looking for in that early stage innovation, even late stage, we buy all, all across the board in M&A, is um, I really could bring the artistic science, the engineering capacity, with the partnership, even in ophthalmology at every step of the journey, even post-commercialization as we get larger number of patients, how do you actually think about the safety benefit risk of a product line? And are you really delivering on the promise of, of the technology? So that led me to Boston Scientific. I had very diverse roles, and I'll describe why. So I started out in medical affairs, built a medical affairs function with Boston, and that eventually led to head of clinical, head of regulatory, and ultimately a general manager role, one of the first technical females, so two firsts, a technical background running the full P&L and a female running the full P&L. And why did, who I think is a phenomenal CEO is Mike Mahoney, um, most people in the street know that name, is he took a chance on me. So on me because being at the right time, right spot with my background, they had acquired a large company, American Medical Systems AMS, and the leader needed to not only navigate the commercial globalization of the product line, there were product pipeline things that we had to get accomplished. There were things we had to um, uh, accomplish with the FDA from a regulatory perspective. Um, so it was easier to take the chance on the scientist technical that was a commercial personality and had done things with the commercial teams. And so that landed me into general manager spot of their urology division at Boston. And two and a half years ago, um, what led me to Alcon, while I wasn't looking to be recruited, it was very attractive. And we'll talk about the ophthalmic space. If you take a look at ophthalmology and where we're headed the even COVID, think about it, I have my, I'm presbyopic, so I have my readers on with my contacts, is the amount of ophthalmic support that's going to be needed as we start to see, you know, increased need, retinal disease increasing, um, technology development, value proposition, value creation in this space, my ability to take my science, my business, and come to a different space. I've done cardiology, radiology, peripheral vascular. I've been in a lot of spaces. It was attractive to me. It allowed me to step up to a president level, take on more complex roles at a company, and go into a therapeutic area that was in need of innovation. We still haven't uh, fully developed drug elution in the eye. Implantables, how do we get them you know, better over time with innovation? So I joined uh, Alcon two and a half years ago. I run almost a $5 billion business. And what you're gathering in my story is number one, diversity of my gender, diversity of my background, diversity of my skill sets throughout my career. And I think it's landed me in a great place to be able to 
drive through complex problems and solutions with a large company that's going to be critically important. I always say that we have multiple senses, but the one that we don't want to give up is our sight. You know, you don't want to give up any sense, but sight's one of them. And the amount of eye care issues or issues we're going to face with eye care in the next decade is going to be alarming. We don't have enough physicians in the space to take care of it. So my, my ability to bring value proposition, efficiency in technology and, and, and surgeries will serve the populations well that I help to partner with. So, you know, again, fascinating. I mean, that you've been involved in so many different um, sort of disease state verticals uh, across, you know, multiple different lines, multiple different companies. And, and just to be clear, and I think important for people to know, you don't have any formal business training. No, right. along your journey, I did go to Harvard's courses running global businesses. So as you start out, I always uh, tell I have two boys, look, your undergraduate degrees uh, introduce you to, if, if it's in science, you're introduced to things. And along your career journey, you're gathering training and education. So it isn't you start out and you're running a $5 billion business. It's smaller steps towards P&L. So don't be naive that in clinical trials, the amount of money being spent by these large com- companies, having a VP role of clinical, we're spending millions to understand and file regulatory clinical. So it's a uh, a crawl, walk, run. Right. I'm now running at a large company, large position, but P&L exposure, P&L experience, doing some of the Harvard courses, gathering that financial acumen over time was either afforded through formal training in, in large institutions and or through your own company. So they do support your growth and learning. There's no magic formula to any of us. If you would have asked me my crystal ball back at the age of 25, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if I would have looked in the crystal ball and they would have said, you're living in Dallas, Texas, running a $5 billion business, I wouldn't have guessed that. And nor did I look that far ahead. My career advice to many that are young, whatever age, I consider myself young at 50 yet, is just keep building skills in your in your skill sets, in your box. I call it your toolbox in your career. And look, you don't know if which one you're going to pull out or what's going to pay off. But fundamentally, as I'm hiring, I'm also looking for diversity because even if functionally, and I tell this to the folks that are at Alcon, if you're head of regulatory, I still want you to be close to the procedure. Understand what you're talking to, to these regulatory agencies so that you know whether or not you're best serving the needs of the business as you're helping navigate a regulatory filing. So regardless of what your career aspiration is, you need to sit back and realize the more you know about the business and the full enterprise, the better you are to navigate your own area of expertise. That's always been a fundamental belief of mine. So I call it lifelong learner appetite for understanding the full business so I can serve best in the role that I'm serving in. So that's your best career advice to people. Because everybody has a different passion on what they want to be. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's a great it's a great story, and it's certainly impressive. I'm sure you've heard that before, but it, I just think it's a, a further validator of the mantra that a lot of people who are successful uh, sort of espouse when they talk to people, which is that you know you got to get out there and you got to learn. You know, it's not just necessarily sitting in a classroom, and you don't have to be an MBA to to know how to run a business. You know, you don't have to have that level of understanding, you know, to do certain things. So um, it's just another validation that, you know, you can become um, the type of sort of successful business leader that you want to be by, you know, going through the process of educating yourself through experience. And I think that's, that's your Absolutely. perfect example of that. So, 
Absolutely. So Although along the journey, I, you know, I was, um, um, I was going, I was signed up to go to the executive program Wharton before I left Merck, the 18 month executive program. While that would have been very helpful because it's almost like I call it a crash along that journey, you are taking finance courses, you're talking to treasury, you're understanding right. impairments, you're, so it's funny because it might have been an easier speed date to get all that right in one one uh, swoop, but you have to. There, there's a non-negotiable at the Harvard course that I went to. There was a debate whether or not um, people were over their skis. Are they faking it to make it? Was a good topic. And at first, my um, my professor it was Bill George, um, you know, old Medtronic CEO. He's great moderator. He said, "Are you saying the women are doing that?" And he's like, no, Jeanette, debate me back. And I said, no, I think anybody in a large position, are they fully competent to be doing what they're doing? And I would give it maybe the 80-20 role where we probably all in any new role are learning 20, 30%. But are you a leader that knows that you have to learn it and you actually accomplish it versus you're over your skis and you're making business decisions, you may not have as much competency around. So you're always learning but I'm like, there are going to be people in every level, medicine, industry, that may, may be over their skis a little bit, but do they actually pull back and learn to actually ski flawlessly? Crazy. I agree. I mean, it's fascinating. But yes, you're right. There's always opportunities to go back to school and or, ta- or incorporate education into the process when you feel like you're not understanding everything or you feel like you need a, a greater degree of understanding of certain things you haven't been taught before. But I've just always been, I, you know, I just tell this to my own kids as well, that, you know, getting out in the world and working and getting experience, it's how you, it's how you eventually become successful. So. I'll use you as an example when they push back. They usually, <laughs> okay, usually, usually push back on everything. So I'm sure that'll happen again there. Um, so um, let's move on for a, a little bit. I, I will start the next part of this uh, part of the conversation with a thank you. Um, and uh, it's a thank you because I am a practicing ophthalmologist. And as a practicing ophthalmologist, I can tell you that um, for nearly the entirety of my 24, 23, four years of practicing, I have relied upon Alcon products in the majority of situations in which I find myself um, either treating patients um, medically or surgically in the operating room. And that continues to be a trend going forward. And I think that one of the things that happens, it's not just in ophthalmology and it's not just in society, but people take for granted some of the work and technical skill that's required in order to develop the products that we use today. So, you know, people have cataract surgery now and they come in asking for a certain type of lens and, you know, they're not 2020 at the end of their surgery and they're complaining and they have no idea how complex the optics of creating an intraocular lens are. They don't understand the fluidics of a FACO machine and what it takes to keep the eye pressurized and suck out intraocular contents to put in. They just don't get it. And I think most ophthalmologists probably take it for granted as well, right? We just use it. It's just part of our, our routine. But but Alcon has really, you know, pretty much been a leader. I think 90% of surgeons in the United States use Alcon surgical equipment. Is that correct? Yeah. So, yes. so, greater, so it, yeah. It, yeah. So, and, and, and again, you know, there are other surgical companies out there, BNL has products and, and there are other surgical companies out there that do a good job, but it just, you know, people have migrated towards Alcon's suite of products um, and lenses for a reason. And, and, and I think that it's a testament to the quality of the company. Um, and you guess you get credit for that indirectly. So thank you. 
how did how did it get here? How is it? How how did it get there? I mean, how do you how do you manage to stay on top of this curve where the competition is fairly fierce? And what is it that you think differentiates Alcon from some other companies that has allowed you to maintain that dominant position for so long? Mm-hmm. Well, first, thank you for acknowledgement of what Alcon's accomplished. While I may be younger younger in tenure, I don't lose sight, no pun intended, of how much Alcon has contributed to the world. We're a global leader in uh, ophthalmology. And there's a humility to the company. They don't take that for granted. We, it's a we now with me uh, being at the helm. We don't take that for granted. Number one, it does take a lot of resources. I think the thing that it's integrity, I'll use the word integrity. And so people rely on Alcon to bring quality products around the world. And we pride ourselves in saying, can we play in both premium markets mid-tier, different segments economically around the world? Um, Are we really thinking about the value proposition? So you talk about FACO, you know, the evolution of FACO and what we've done and the ability to uh, remove a cataract in in a seamlessly safe way, you know, takes a lot behind the scenes, both from a software, hardware, et cetera. So look, we, we retain and attract talent that are best in class in a lot of spaces. So optics, yeah, you know, we just released two brand new interocular lenses that truly have delivered on a promise. Um, we can give you far intermediate and near sight in one lens, but don't take for granted the fact that there's a lot of physics, mathematics around landing that lens as a practitioner and us even making sure we have all the diagnostics interoperatively to allow you to do that. Um, so we we have a very solid optical team. We're also known for capital equipment. So in the OR, it's hard both from intellectual property, but also just the amount of subject matter experts sitting at Alcon that can actually deliver the devices that we're delivering. But we never arrive, I'll call it never arriving. We're relentlessly dissatisfied in the fact that even though we're the leader, there's only number one spot. And we, we are number one in surgical in almost all areas we play. And I think in all areas is what we said on Capital Markets Day. And so in that space, we stay humble to realize that we still have evolution. So what surprised me the most about ophthalmology when I came in was the amount of manual inefficiency, I'll call it. So if you take a look at robotics and other spaces, you take a look at electronic medical records, data capture and ability, I I think about radiology because I worked there in my former job, is um, we have so much value creation yet. I made the comment earlier that I'll take a a country like China. There's not enough retinal surgeons. The amount of retinal disease in China with, you know, high myopes, et cetera, is going to be farther exceed the amount of practitioners we have over there. So we've got to think about how do we create value and efficiencies. Retinal surgeries are long. You know that and I know that. How do we actually optimize it? Let folks go faster in a safe manner. We're going to do that in our next generation FACO. Um, system, both back and front of the eye, how do we actually bring a digital health suite that allows you to stop worrying about manual entry errors um, and capture data from a biometer, come across to the OR, and actually do some of the algorithms that, you know, there's not a disparity between interoperative aberometry versus biometry. We're doing all that at Outcome. We're not resting on, hey, we're number one, we're actually trying to fig- figure out additional value proposition beyond technology, but in data sciences as well. So that's our next journey at the company, um, because you do expect us, number one, never let down quality. Number two, bring me best in class product. And number three, figure out what I don't know yet that I need to make my practice more efficient. 
they're kind of the value props we watch. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, look, again, I am uh, one of the unique positions that I have in doing these interviews is that I'm a utilizer, right? I'm not just a guy who's going to invest in companies. I actually use this stuff every Thursday. So, you know, it's been interesting to see the evolution of the technology over time over the last 20 something years and to sort of understand the complexities of how it got to where it is. And, and again, in the face of, you know, what is probably a fairly stiff level of competition, there has always been this ability for, for Alcon to have maintained that, you know, dominance in the market. And I never really understood how you've managed to do that. One of my favorite books, actually, is it in here? Yeah, here it is. So one of my favorite books, yeah, it's one of my favorite books, right? I don't know if anybody can see it. It's probably backwards, but. Innovator's friend, Dilemma. Yep. Yeah. So, I've read it. So, yeah. So almost every CA I've ever spoken to has read it, right? My best friend, um, one of my best friends, Jeff Smith, gave me that book when we launched the fund. And he's like, this is how you're going to find out where you want to invest. And and ultimately, you know, I think the, the point of that book and, and what Alcon has managed to avoid is, you know, falling into a routine where you think that what you have is the only thing that will ever be needed. And it's the best thing ever. And therefore, you don't need to innovate. And no, not, we would never. The case. Yeah, it's not. Look, I and I give credit to Harvard again in some of my business training is, look, you've got companies and there's an S curve. And a lot of us get in industry get stuck on the, the, the steepest part of that S curve. And you do inch ups because it's more risky in a company as a leader like myself and my team to take bets. There's no magic formula to innovation, but you better have a well-baked ideation team that's thinking about what's next, what's next. I'm not planning for the short term. We're now planning for the long term because you should have been baking the short term already. And that's a combination of internal organic investments and external. I'm watching the space. And, but yet you can't put everything in the high risk, your MP, everything's high risk in stage one, don't know if it's going to come out. It is a balancing act. There's no magic formula, but I tend to say, okay, I'm going to spend anywhere from 50 to 60% in the core business, make sure I'm not losing in that space but I need the adjacencies at 20 or 30 and at least 10% of my bets are going to be that breakthrough technology that either reshapes a space and or brings something that's so novel that either price increases, reimbursement changes, um, value creation to either the payer or the provider. Um, You have to run a business that way. The moment you get paralyzed, and I've seen leaders do it and think it's just an inch up, that's too risky. You've lost the game. You're going to lose one in three. You got to know that but you're going to bet on two of the three that are going to pan out. So that, and we do that both in, you know, organic and inorganic. We have to, Um, you're not going to stay number one by being paranoid or paralyzed. Right. So let's talk about that for a minute, because I think for the entrepreneurs that on the audience, I think the inorganic growth is important to them. And I think they want to understand in some capacity how they can sort of get into the mind of Alcon you know, at least to try and understand whether or not they have a shot at, you know, creating some sort of partnership with you. And if, and, and even if they're not at that level, how they can interact with Alcon as a company at an early stage, if that's possible to sort of gain some guidance as to whether or not they're, they're sort of barking up the right tree. Is there a process or a pathway that, that, that you follow or a way for your inorganic growth pipeline to sort of spread out to the world so that people can interact with you in, in some way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one thing I was pleasantly surprised with, I, w- I told you about the manual, not a manual uh, data entry, and I'll call it inefficiency, but we are where we are and we'll evolve it. 
the the pleasant surprise to me was the amount of external partnerships. We have a very active, large uh, BDNL business deals and licensing group at Alcon. And we do speeds every single week. People come into Alcon because they know, number one, our commercial footprint. It can be very positive for them should their idea be liked by us, whether it be royalties, patents, um, developing to a point where we want to acquire. We're very active in BDNL. And so, and, and we're efficient about it. Um, if there's an idea we're looking for, everything's game for us. We're, we're not, we're humble enough to realize that there's a lot of entrepreneurial creators that may be faster than us early stage. Um, and so they're doing some of the ideation work. Um, the easiest way, we, on our website, it's there, uh, Rob. So if a, a person wants to either get a hold of me um, literally, I keep a distance from a funding because I am the one that says the deed of the funding, but I send them right to my BDNL group. They have experts across clinical, regulatory, et cetera, that sits on that team, financial, and they'll engage with you. And every week I'm looking at multiple number of ideas. We call them speeds. And we're like, is that in game? Is that not in game? And we're humble enough to say, well, we not, may not be interested, but here's some pearls of wisdom you might want to think about to get to the next stage. And maybe we're not ready to invest yet, but this is what it's going to take for us to invest at that next, you know, series of funding round or whatever. But we place bets early and late stage. Um, so don't be hesitant and shy about Alcon, you know, picking up and trying to call the biggie because we, we were humble enough to realize that anybody can create an idea. We do watch the IP landscape. My biggest advice is, don't recreate something. Make sure you're checking the IP. We have many people that come in. We're like, do you realize there's IP on that? Either we have it or somebody else does. So make sure you understand, you know, from an entrepreneurial level, you know, get your patents in, make sure you're not breaching somebody else's. And if you're really good at the space and you know the space well, there's so much value yet to create. That's why when I saw the pages of partnerships and people were watching, it's because we have a lot of things unsolved for yet. Well, that's the whole reason that we started, you know, what we started. Nine, in, uh, nine companies, you said. <laughs> well, 13, 13. And, and, 13. and you know, we, we're, we're ophthalmologists and our advisory board are all ophthalmologists and, you know, ophthalmic executives from the past. And, you know, we realized the, as practicing clinicians, I'm like, how, where are these companies? Where is this technology? How are we going to get these things you know, out into the world? And sort of that's where we invest. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think that I think our responsibility as a venture capital fund with the level of expertise that we have internally is to sort of propagate some of these companies to a point where you're ready for them um, or where they have quality enough data to be acquired by a strategic. And I think that's what we've given ourselves as an internal mandate. And because we realize the same, just as you do that, there are so many unsolved issues in ophthalmology. It's amazing with everything that we can do now, how many problems still exist. And they're complex. The eye is a difficult place to, to play around in. And, and, you know, I think we'll get there eventually. And hopefully, you know, all 13 of our companies will end up being successful because we think they solve problems that need to be solved. But, but ultimately, it's a challenge. It's, it's definitely a challenge. And, um, you know, I think that we're all hoping that we, we solve some of these sort of quickly because you're right, the amount of disease out there is going to increase rapidly over the next 20 years and it's going to become public health crisis, you know, in a significant way, not only in the U.S., but everywhere. So look at the big spaces and I don't know your companies, you can expose it to me later, but um, is look, myopia control. China, if you look at the ranking, cancer's number two, uh, myopia controls number three for the for the Chinese government. I don't know if you knew that. Yep. is um, it's huge. Um, second, I don't think we're arrived on AMD. It makes me sad. My mom's an AMD patient that gets needles in the eyes every six weeks. And she's looking at me like, okay, figure it out, right? 
Um, we have so much space. Glaucoma, like hypertension, a lifelong disease. You're not going to see them once. You're going to see them multiple times. And do we have the right, you know, mild to moderate options all the way to severe refraction, refractive cases? So um, we haven't solved there yet. That's a lifelong journey with us. You're going to have it the rest of your life. It's just how do we mitigate it, control it, and minimize, you know, damage to you or loss of sight. So I, I, I get giddy. That's why I came to ophthalmology. I'm like, there's so many spaces that we still have. At least in my age, I'm, I'm young. We have several decades of in- inventions, um, value creation, digi- digitalization that we're not even close to arriving. We're not even a tenth of the journey yet, Rob. So, so that's a little glimpse into, I think, the next part of the conversation, which is so Alcon, you know, is as you've already sort of explained, and as I think most of us have seen throughout the years, has always been progressive in how it approaches, uh, you know, ophthalmic disease. What are the things that you think are going to be, you know, significant points of focus for you, aside from, let's say, the management of ophthalmic disease? Is there any opportunity um, for other disease states, let's say, or um, digital healthcare, diagnostics? Um, mm-hmm. How do you approach the outside the United States landscape? How are those things sort of factored into the, you know, sort of, you know, let's say, 30,000 foot level over the next 10 years for what Alcon wants to do? Okay, I'll start in reverse order. Without, so. without exposing anything that you're not supposed to. I won't, expose, you know, I, won't I promise, Rob. Sorry. <laughs> is, uh, from a global perspective, I'll take it backwards. From a global perspective, look, we're increasing our footprint. Um, we set a capital markets day. We had over 19 regulatory filings and approvals in China. So we didn't have a big presence in Asia Pacific. Um, and so we're growing globally. There's, there's global growth opportunity for the company. Um, but we also have to think about from a global footprint, you know, it's not just premium people are going to be seeking, you know, what's going to be interesting to watch in international as you think about med device regulations, MDR and MDD and the changes there, how many companies are going to actually make it through? There's no longer substantial equivalence in products in Europe. And so did all these smaller companies do the clinical requirements to maintain in the market after 2024? So there may be this all of a sudden, oh my gosh, in the monofocal market, there's not 12 competitors, there's X now. Um, so we've got to think about not just being a premium player. Let's, let's talk about what our role and responsibility is. We're, we brought out a device called Legion, a portable FACO machine. Look, we've got all of the traditional Lariat, Silver. We've got all the different generations of FACO. We had to think about both a portable in India. Think about India and China, those remote parts of the country that have to still do FACO. We put out a, what I'll call a mid-tier FACO piece of equipment. Um, and it's doing phenomenally well um, internationally. Um, that's our responsibility. We're thinking about how do we uh, still maintain a price acceptable monofocal along with premium lenses. Everybody has a different economic value uh, capability around the world. And so you're seeing Alcon actually globalize in a more meaningful way, uh, both with premium mid-tier offerings. Um, so that's number one. Um, and you'll see that as we talk to the street. Second is, and we're not shy, if there are international, and you talked about private equity, uh, investments, if there's things that make sense, we also take to heart that it's not just domestic America and that Europe and US, you know, have to drive what we do. They're large markets for us. There's going to be unique things that are needed in countries like China and or Australia, Asia Pacific, that may make us partner in a different way for technology just in that market. Okay, so we're open to that as well. As a leader, I'll say that. When we look at where we're headed, you ask the question around different disease states. Yes, if it makes sense to us. 
So think about as an investor in Alcon stock, we need to step back and make sure that there's synergy there. We have a huge focus on ophthalmology. There are other spaces that I won't mention because we're looking at that may make sense to us. There's synergy. It's in our area of expertise. um, And we'll go there. Um, But we have a lot to solve in ophthalmology um, still and and a lot of growth opportunity for us. Um, And when you talk about diagnostics, that was your third part. Mm -hmm. Look, traditionally, you know Alcon is in the OR. We are putting our foot in a meaningful way outside the OR. So we just launched a biometer biometer called Argos. And so we're getting competitive to the people that might be number one in that space, some of our competitors. And we have ability with technical expertise internally to take it where you wouldn't think you'd be able to go. So can we scan the back of the eye for retinal disease in the optometrist's office that, by the way, they're going to tag you next as an ophthalmologist say, hey, you know, Alcon's new device can do everything from more accurate measurement, easier to do. I'm getting good results. It's going across the cloud and it's coming into the OR. And by the way, did you realize that we scan the back of the eye and we can see things in a more meaningful way? So we've entered in in a more meaningful way to the biometer market, and we've got technology coming out in the next several years that will literally create new uh, for the whole world. So we're excited about some of the technologies that may be able to do things beyond what you imagine now. Yeah, it's, I mean, again, you think about it, you say, it, and of you know, it's obvious, right, to to the clinical world that said, of course, we need those things. You know, mm-hmm. of course, of course, we need that technology. I think the challenge is always finding, you know, high quality technology and making it affordable. Obviously, the biggest stumbling block that I think we all perceive that's going to derail a lot of what we want to do is, you know, the need for increased amount of capital placed into the delivery of quality healthcare. Right, mm-hmm. populations are aging. Um, position reimbursements continue to drop. Um, Alcon and other companies have managed to provide some um, revenue streams for physicians with uh, premium services offerings that, you know, sort of help mitigate some of that, but it's a t- difficult cycle to, to navigate. And I, um, you know, it's always the one checkbox in our diligence list that's hard to to navigate, which is what's the reimbursement for this going to be in three years, five years, seven years? How is that, you know, impacting? Yeah. And as you've mentioned, you've already solved some of that outside the U.S. where obviously things can't be as expensive as they are here. And that's going to filter into, I think, decision making amongst most um, either entrepreneurs and how they approach their technologies and certainly from the strategic landscape and how they invest. Um, yeah. Rob, one uh, comment is the Health Economics and Reimbursement Group reports into me, I have a large organization, both for pricing, but also thinking about value creation in our technologies. It's a core at what I've done in previous life as well, um, is we're thinking differently though. So think about the reimbursement landscape and the pressure you're facing. We're making sure that as we think about value creation, can you imagine if we can create the center of the OR that allows a retina surgeon to bring three more cases a day in because we've made it that much efficient, more efficient, or a cataract surgeon, and we're running the data, like we know what our next generation technology is going to do, you know, being able to have a cataract surgeon do one or two more a day because we've been that efficient, or a retina surgeon three to four, that's real. That's what we're going to put on the board in the next couple of years. So, you know, with the, again, to make to the population increasing on eye disease and eye needs, us being able to bring more efficiency in a price pressure uh, uh, market it'll be value creation to you guys. And it's not that we're jacking up the price in a, in a, a ludicrous way. We're trying to maintain that partnership with you guys, but efficiency, efficiency gains, value creation, that's how we think. And so we will win with you if we can do that for you. 
Ab- absolutely. I mean, it's incredible how much um, I think uh, sort of financial education physicians have had to go through over the last 10 years as they started to, you know, the perception of the past was the physicians make all this money and we can just jack, you know, cut reimbursements because they'll be fine. But it's really come to the point where the productivity curve and the expense curve have crisscrossed and you start to see these, you know, significant downward pressure on physicians, large physician groups, health systems, and everybody to try and rein this stuff in. And people sometimes shake their heads, well, my God, how do you do that many cataracts in a day? You know, and is that safe and, and everything else? And I'm like, yeah, Actually, it is safe and and it's actually required because we're running out of resources to take care of all of the people that actually need these procedures. Like, you Mm -hmm. you know, it's always the answer, right? Well, yeah, I'll just cancel 10 of those people. What are we going to do with those so that I have a shorter day? Like, these are people who need health care, not only in the U.S. and across the world, but um, it's interesting how the perspectives of the population and of the practicing physicians and of the, you know, strategic entities like Alcon perceive these things differently. And um, educating the public, I think, is going to be um, important to a greater degree as time goes on. Healthcare is not going to get cheaper. Yeah. And as diagnostics, look, as we think about our next generation diagnostics, even some of the value creation, A scans, you have a dense cataract, Argus can go through it. Now we're not, we're, we're showing value creation on either cost avoidance somewhere else, time avoidance. Um, so that's, you know, there's no longer a nice to have, it's a need to have. We have to show you guys that and we have to build technologies around that value creation and show you what value we're bringing, but we can't demand a price even at, at parity. Um, so you'll, you'll see us do that. Um, to make you more efficient, more effective, and never jeopardize safety. Like you guys trust integrity, that word I used to begin with. Well, listen, I cannot, you know, say enough how much um, I've enjoyed speaking to you, you know, today and in some of our uh, preliminary discussions. And, um, you know, I, again, it's, it's, a, it's a big thank you on behalf of me and I think almost all the clinically, clinically practicing physicians that I know um, who appreciate what you've provided for us and make us better at, at doing our jobs. And I think that we are all looking forward to what Alcon will bring us in the future um, to make us, you know, better and more efficient and provide better outcomes. And, you know, you get the, you know, the majority of that credit. And, and I think the people who've listened to this podcast today will appreciate the, um, the drive, the commitment, the energy that you bring there. And we'll sort of understand as time goes on that um, there's a reason that this company is successful and, and, and that's why it continues to be successful. So for everybody who's listening, I want to, you know, again, special thank you to Jeanette Bankus for taking the time to talk to us today. And I hope everybody enjoys listening to this and forward to future conversations with you down the road. So Jeanette, thank you again and take care. Thank you. That's all the time we have, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the OIS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the OIS Podcast channel on iTunes so you won't miss another episode. Got a story of your own to tell? Apply to be a guest at OIS.net.